We are speaking tonight of the Battle of Kadesh, but Kadesh is far more than a single battle. This is actually a century-long conflict of which the battle was a primary, but by no means the only or even necessarily the major event. We will be discussing both things before and after the aspects of the Kadesh battle itself in order to determine who is the winner, if there is a winner. Now, the interesting thing about Kadesh as a battle is that it is the earliest battle in recorded history for which we can give extraordinarily detailed discussion of logistics. We know exactly what took place, when, where. We have earlier Egyptian records of battles, and certainly there are battles from many cultures, but this is really the first one that we can be very specific about. Books on military history in Egypt, this one shows Libyans and Egyptians fighting, nonetheless give a large portion of the discussion to the Battle of Kadesh. And this military series includes, in fact, a separate book dedicated exclusively to the Battle of Kadesh. Moreover, in general studies of military histories, battles of the ancient world, you will notice the very first battle to be discussed is Kadesh. So, if we are going to talk about how this took place and ultimately what came from it, I need to set the stage for you from, of course, the very biased Egyptian perspective, <clears throat> which is very true. <laughs> it is worth noting that there are a number of Egyptian terms in modern English. Ivory, ebony, adobe, and perhaps gold, surviving in the word for Nubia. What is notable, however, is there is no term that's translatable for usable lumber, since Egypt had none. <laughs> Thus, since early dynastic times, there was a need for trade with northern Levant, Lebanon, and Syria for critical wood and minerals. This is the primary economic motivation for northern colonization by Egyptians. Because the question might well be raised, what does Egypt care about Kadesh? Economic reason number one. Reason number two, the experience of a Hyksos invasion coming out of the Levant into Egypt and the ultimate expulsion of those Hittites, those Hyksos, and by the way, the Egyptians equated the two in certain contexts, this expulsion of Levantines actually began the new kingdom. There was the need to create a geographic buffer zone to prevent any further infiltration of Egypt militarily or otherwise by a Levantine polity. This was expressed in a constant New Kingdom royal refrain where kings went out to campaign to, quote, extend the boundaries of Egypt. This was the primary strategic motivation for northern colonialism. Now, it is also worth noting that there was no desire on the part of Egyptians for a, an expanded world empire. They didn't want it. They never cared for such a thing. Unlike the Assyrians, the Persians, Alexander the Great, or Rome, Kadesh had been sub subdued by the warrior king Tuthmosis III four times. These are examples of his campaigns. <clears throat> 
And in one of those campaigns, we have our first Egyptian reference to the Hittites. He, like his grandfather, Tuthmosis I, actually crossed the Euphrates River. He defeated the nation of Mitanni, but then he returned beyond the river and went back. There was no desire to incorporate that area into Egypt. It wasn't worth it. His son, Amenhotep II, defeated Mitanni and created a warm peace with his former enemies, including the Hittites. His son, grandson, Tuthmosis IV, and his, that man's son, Amenhotep III, accepted Mitanni princesses as secondary wives. So there was a warm peace that developed between Egypt and its former enemies. This pattern of a truce and dynastic marriages would be repeated by Ramses II in the events of Kadesh. The real reason for the immediate conflict with Kadesh is the disastrous results of the Amarna Revolution and the loss of northern territory because of this unfortunate successor of Amenhotep III. He was a religious fundamentalist whose interest was entirely on his own religious revolution within Egypt itself, and as a result, there was a withdrawal of the military from the frontier in the north. And where, you might wonder, were they? We know something about what's going on from the Amarna correspondence, where individuals, especially rulers in the northern part of the Levant, Amuru will be a place that be of much conflict back and forth between the Egyptian and the Hittites, talk about requesting troops from the king, and the Egyptian troops never come. Where were they? Well, here is that area of Amuru. This is the contested area. And eventually the Hittites under Shupi Luviuma would go through Kadesh and all the way down here. Here's where the Egyptian troops were. This is a representation of Egyptian troops marching through Akhetaten, Tel Amarna. Because what, it, uh, what the king did was to withdraw Egyptian troops from the north and use them to hack up the temples and monuments, searching pre private individuals' names, grandparents' names, to remove the name of Ammon wherever they could find it. Going through private individuals' funerary documents, and that's where the troops were. So there were none to defend the border in the north. Please read that. <laughs> So the disastrous effects of the Amarna Revolution, the loss of the Northern Territory, was the immediate motivation for the post-Amarna conflict with the Hittites. So then you get a new commoner military dynasty 19, which had a need to project legitimacy and to restore internal royal authority after the disgrace of the Akhenaten heresy. The Egypt had been preparing for years, assuming that there would be a threat coming from the north to attack its boundaries. And instead, the threat was from the supposed defender of the state itself. It was an internal problem, not an external one. So as a result, there was a need to re-establish royal authority, which had sunk to an all-time low. There were campaigns by Horemhab, who immediately succeeded uh, after I, who briefly existed, uh, Tutankhamun, and then Seti I, the father of Ramses the Great. 
In years five and six, Seti conquered Kadesh in the second campaign. This was after that territory had been lost to the Hittites for over a century. It was recaptured by Seti. He fights the Muatali in his fourth campaign, perhaps ending with a treaty. Despite the victory, Kadesh was abandoned by Seti, even though he won the fight, which suggests that the town itself was not actually important. What is important is the title here of the study by Bill Murnane of the Seti War Reliefs, because even in this period, the father of Ramses the Great, everything that's going on is essentially establishing the road to Kadesh. The Hittites ended up respecting the Egyptian control of the southern Phoenician seaports with the cedar, which is what the Egyptians cared about. Egypt abandoned Kadesh and the much-disputed Amuru. Ramses II had played a junior role in the, in the Seti battles, but when he came to the throne, he had a need to prove his own might to continue the restoration of the very fledgling Dynasty 19 proving his valor and might and worthiness to be king. So he had something invested in this war. This, then, is the Hittite territory, now vastly expanded. Kadesh is right there. And the much-discussed Palmyra, by the way, from contemporary news, you see over here. Aleppo in Syria is way up there. There will be some reason for me to mention that in a future section. So this was where the Egyptians began in the time of Ramses II. Theo? Uh, thanks, Robert, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, coming tonight. It is my task to present the, uh, the Hittite site. Uh, so I will uh, exclusively use Hittite sources with one very small exception that I will mention when I get there. Um, it will be heavily text oriented uh, up to the Battle of Kadesh, because when the Battle of Kadesh uh, happens, then suddenly the Hittite sources become extremely silent. And that is a question that I will address at the very end of my talk. Um, it will be heavily text oriented because we only have texts. Um, Hittite art is not uh, uh, as famous as uh, Egyptian art. Uh, Egypt has the colors. It has the beautiful monuments. Uh, there is nothing like it on the, uh, on the Hittite side. Um, but it doesn't make it less interesting. They were not the degenerates that you saw at the Doomsbury um, <laughs> cartoon. Um, so uh, I have split in three sections. First, I will talk about uh, everything that leads up to the Battle of Kadesh, to the eve of the battle, um, again, exclusively from the Hittite sources. Um, in a second part, uh, we will talk about what the Hittite texts have to say about the battle itself, and then in a final section, uh, I will talk about the aftermath, uh, especially the logistics of getting to the treaty, and I will address what I think is the most interesting question at least from the Hittite side, is why don't the Hittites talk about Kadesh or hardly? Okay, Professor Rittner has already shown several maps. We're talking about central uh, Syria. Kadesh is in Syria, but 
we haven't yet talked about why Syria. Hittite armies never reached uh, Egypt. Egyptian armies never invaded uh, Anatolia. So why did they meet there? Well, then as now, uh, Syria was throughout the history of the ancient Near East a much contested area. Um, it was for commerce, Professor Rittner already uh, mentioned that, uh, a very important uh, uh, area of the ancient Near East, and, uh, for, and it was the gateway for any travel from east to west or west to east uh, uh, for the ancient Near East. Um, but for the Hittites, it had a, uh, um, an extra importance because controlling northern Syria... Alalakh there and Karkemish right there, although it's not on the map, meant controlling access or the main access route into Anatolia from uh, Mesopotamia. So they guarded their own uh, Anatolia for access from the outside. And so it's no surprise that the Hittites, in their uh, wish to have a buffer state there in northern Syria, came into contact with the Egyptians already quite early. And uh, the names Tutmosis III and Amenhotep II in about the second half of the 15th century, the late 1400s, have already been mentioned by Professor Rittner. And uh, it is in that period that we have references to already an existing first treaty between Ghati, the Hittites, and uh, Egypt. The treaty itself is not preserved, but we have some references to it that gives us at least an uh, that give us at least an idea of what it uh, was all about. Um, the treaty, the main, you see, by the way, that uh, Professor Rickner's slides were all black lettering on white. Um, this was not arranged beforehand. Um, the main or one of the main issues of that treaty, that early treaty, which again we don't have, uh, was apparently a local Anatolian population that had resettled or was to be resettled in the Syrian area. And they were called the people of Kurustama, as you see in there, the town of Kurustama. And at some point, uh, around 1300, King Morshili was going through his uh, tablet collections. Uh, he was looking for something. And he found the second tablet, which is about the town of Kurustama. And it tells us how the storm god of Ghati, the Hittites, brought the people of Kurustama to Egypt. And how the storm god of Ghati made a treaty for them with the people of Ghati. And it tells us how they were then put under oath by the storm god of Ghati. And this, this oath imposed by the storm god of Ghati, uh, that is the key term for the existence of a treaty. So that must have been one of the main issues. But there are some more references to it uh, that show that uh, part of the treaty must also have been the establishing of a mutual non-aggression pact. And probably there were also some border regulations uh, in there which centered right around Amuru and Kadesh. Then around 
about a hundred years later almost, um, we find King Shupiluliuma, the Hittite king, campaigning again in Syria. The Hittites had a difficult time behind them, and King Shupiluliuma uh, wanted to restore uh, northern Syria for the Hittites. And the, uh, or let me go back once more, uh, and the yeah, the crowning achievement of his work, the last piece of the puzzle to restore Hittite power was the, that's the wrong one, uh, was the siege there uh, at the age of Alalah, uh, there at the, uh, at the bend of the Euphrates River, his siege of the city of Carchemish. And then uh, something, or yeah, something strange happened, um, but Chupuluma made a big mistake. His son Mursli later tells us what happened. While my father was down in the land of Carchemish, besieging this city, he sent his generals Lupaki and Targunta Zalma to the land of Amka, which is right around Amuru. Thereupon they attacked Amka and brought back to my father prisoners of war, cattle and sheep. And by doing so, by moving deep into Egyptian-controlled Syrian territory, Shukruliuma transgressed the oath of that Kurushtama treaty that we just read about. And he didn't just do it once, he kept going. Morshili continues, now, while the people of Hatti and Egypt were put under oath by the storm god, so there was this treaty, it happened that the people of Hatti turned away and suddenly broke the divine oath, the oath sworn before the gods. Because my father sent troops and chariots, and they attacked Egyptian territory, the land of Amka, and again he sent them, and again they attacked. Note that this is Morshili, the Hittite king, the uh, second successor uh, to Shupiluliuma, who clearly acknowledges here that the Hittites were in the wrong. They broke the divine oath uh, that was part of the treaty. While Shubhuluma was at Carchemish laying siege to the city, and while he was sending out these generals of his on that raid, something very strange and unique happened. Morshali continues. Now, when the people of Egypt heard of the attack on Amka, they became afraid. Since their lord Nibhururia had recently died, the queen of Egypt, who was the royal consort, sent an envoy to my father. And she wrote to him as follows. My husband has died, and I have no son. But they say that you have many sons. So why don't you give me one son of yours, and I want him to become my husband. I don't want to pick a subject of mine and make him my husband. I'm <laughs> afraid. The <laughs> is a word which we can read, but we don't know what it means. It may be an Egyptian loan word. It is unclear. The pharaoh hiding behind Nipchururia, by the way, uh, that is still a matter of much debate, uh, which exact pharaoh, Amarna pharaoh, that was. Uh, I always like to think it's King Tut, because it's so romantic, but uh, there is no certainty. The queen, the Dahamunzu, as she appears in the Hittite sources, actually wrote twice to Shupiluliuma. And we have a piece of the second letter, 
from Khatusha. It was found there. You see on the left the obverse of the tablet and on the right the reverse of that tablet that those envoys from Egypt brought to the Hittite capital, to Shukruliuma. As you can imagine, Shukruliuma was extremely surprised. He knew that he was in the wrong, that he shouldn't have invaded. And here the throne of Egypt was handed to him on a silver platter, as if to reward him. So Morshili goes on, when my father heard this, he summoned his grandees to discuss the matter, saying, wow, such a thing has never happened to me before. And thereupon, my father sent Hatusha Zidi, his chamberlain, to Egypt, telling him, okay, you go and bring me back a reliable report, because perhaps they are setting a trap for me, perhaps they do have a son of their lord. So bring me back a reliable report. And that was his suspicion makes clear that he knew that he was, uh, that he had violated the earlier existing uh, treaty. Um, and therefore he was suspicious that the Hittites, by asking a son, might get that, uh, in that way a very high level uh, hostage, uh, a Hittite prince, that they could use as leverage in ongoing negotiations. By the time these envoys reached Chupriyuma at Karakamish in northern Syria, it was already fall, winter was slowly coming, so it was time to finish the siege, which Chupriyuma did successfully, and to get back to Anatolia before the mountains became impassable for uh, letting the troops go back. Because of that same circumstance, and because it was a long journey, that Chamberlain of Shukriuma, whom he asked to go and assess the Egyptian situation, uh, of course had to wait for the winter to uh, become spring again, so he didn't return until uh, the, uh, f the, the spring of the next year. And he came back with good news. Everything is okay, the com Egyptians are completely trustworthy, do send a son, and we have a Hittite on the Egyptian throne. That was not the sum. <laughs> but then, uh, something else happened. When my father had given them a son of his, and when they had escorted him away, they killed him the Egyptians. My father burst out, understandably, in rage. He went to Egypt, of course, the Egyptian-controlled Syrian territory, attacked it, and destroyed Egypt's troops and chariots. Even then, says Morshili, the storm god of Hatti, my lord, let my father prevail in the lawsuit, because he defeated Egypt's troops and chariots and destroyed them. When they brought back home to Khatiland, the prisoners of war that they had captured, however, a plague developed among the prisoners and they started to die. So the gods were very clever. They first gave Shukriyuma all the success that he had hoped for, finally to slap him on the wrist with a, an epidemic which raged through the Hittite lands for about 20 years. Shupriyuma was among the victims of this epidemic, as was his first successor, who may have reigned only for a year. And then Morshili, whom we have already met as the author of most of the passages, comes to the throne. And 
the epidemic drives him to despair. And he directs several prayers to the gods. And he apologizes. That is, not to the Egyptians, but to the gods. And he says, O storm god of Hati, my lord, gods, my lords, I know, as it happens, people sin. My father, too, sinned. He broke his word to the storm god of Hati. He violated that treaty. I, on the other hand, I didn't sin at all, as it happens. But the father's sin passes down to his son. And so to me, too, my father's sin passed down. So now, before the storm god of Hati, my lord, and before the, lord, the gods, my lords, okay, I have confessed it. Here it is. It is true. We have done it. Since I have now confessed my father's sin, let the storm god, my lords, and the gods, my lords, mind be satisfied again. Have mercy on me again and ban the plague from Ghatiland again. Do not let those few remaining in Ghatiland who take care of the bread offerings and libations die on me. Morshli is being very subtle about it. We did it. He cannot bring himself to say, I. Because he says, he stresses, I had nothing to do with it. Um, and at the end of the prayer, he also puts in a touch of blackmail, saying, if you gods, if you go on uh, letting all those people die because of the epidemic, there will nobody left to bring you offerings, so you better stop it. <laughs> because of the Egyptian situation, Pharaoh just died. There was uh, temporarily a loosening grip on, the Syri on Syria in that period. But that is soon uh, restored when the, in Egypt the 19th dynasty comes to the throne. Ramses I and then Seti I. Morshili dies in Anatolia, and his son Mubatali comes to the throne. And almost immediately, uh, there is a confrontation in Syria with Seti I for the Egyptians wanting to re-establish Egyptian power in Syria, and Mubatali comes down for a first battle, which goes out very badly for the Hittites. And the result is that this Amuru area, just west of Kadesh, uh, defects from the Hittites. Uh, we have a later source, a Hittite tablet of it's a later treaty with Amuru, and there it they recount when Muatali became king, the people of Amuru rebelled against him and let him know this: we used to be loyal subjects, but now we are your subjects no longer, and they decided to back the king of Egypt. And it may have been right around that moment that Muatali makes a unique move. He <coughs> abandons the capital, the Hittite capital, Hattusha, and moves down, uh, moves the capital down to the area around Tarsus there, more or less, to a place which we have not identified yet, which has not been found yet. And the, in the literature, you will, in general, find two causes for this unprecedented move to let the Hittite capital, the former Hittite capital, now be the capital. Um, 
some people say it was religiously inspired because Muatali um, starts practicing a kind of a monotheistic-like uh, tendency much in the spirit of the Amarna Pharaoh. Some people think that he might even have been inspired by them. The other theory is much more practical and says Muatali, a wise man, he already knew that after this first confrontation uh, with Seti, there would be more, and he wanted, and he already foresaw that there would be a bigger confrontation with Egypt coming up. So it was better to move Hittite forces, Hittite power, closer to the future scene of action, which was there in southern Anatolia, just north of Tarsus or thereabouts. And that, and with that, we have reached the eve of the Battle of Kadesh. And I hand it over to uh, Professor Rittner again. A couple of quick points. Uh, Nebchuria is almost certainly Nebchapurura, the throne name for Tutankhamun, so your initial explanation is probably fine. Secondly, one of my favorite classes in graduate school was Hittite art, so I'd never sell it short. For reasons that I've explained previously, the Battle of Kadesh was extremely important for Ramses II. But none of those reasons actually turned on the town of Kadesh itself. That was where the events took place, but was not actually terribly significant in and of itself. We have from the battle, from the Egyptian side, 13 textual copies surviving, both as a literary record, the so-called poem of Pintawer, and the bulletin texts, which are the more analytic uh, military texts. We have nine major relief scenes at Abydos, Luxor three times, Karnak twice, the Ramesseum twice, Abu Simbel, and probably at many other temples that are now lost. Here is one of the examples at Luxor. We'll be returning to this. The the events are actually storyboarded on the front pylon of Luxor Temple with all the little episodes there in great detail. This is Ramses the Great's mortuary temple, the Ramesseum. The front over here contains some critical scenes on both the front and the back. We'll be seeing them. We have here a portion from the Ramesseum of the literary text, the so-called poem of Pentaware. We also have the graphic scenes. I show you this from an evening setting where you can actually still make out the coloration that survives of the Orontes River. Here is Kadesh over here, completely surrounded by the river with a small canal that had been dug almost as a moat to protect it. We also, at Abu Simbel, have major records. Again, a complete duplicate of what we have everywhere else. And if you look carefully, when you, if you go into the temple here on the side, crushed under Ramses' feet are none other than Hittite rulers. So, what happened? Ramses II set out in his year four, which we can say is circa 1275. And within two months, he reached and conquered Amoru. The local king, Bentashina, switched allegiance back to Egypt, 
But he warned Muatali in Hattusa in a letter. Ramses II then promptly returned in victory to his capital, Paramesis. So what Ramses did was to come up, take the city, take the area, and go home. Now both sides in this eventual conflict had a unified command structure, but large numbers are difficult to control by a single commander. The Egyptians had approximately 20,000 soldiers, 2,000 chariots, 18,000 infantry, divided into four divisions under prominent individuals with a stake in the outcome. So they guaranteed that the generals would fall or win with consequences, which they got. These four groups were placed under divine patronage, Ammon, Ra, Ptah, and Seth. There was also a royal unit for the king's person, bodyguard, and staff, which was organized as a separate mobile unit. In Hattusas, Muatali made a vow to the gods of Hatti for the recapture of Amuru. In the spring 1274, he gathered a much larger force from 16 different vassal provinces and allies. It has been estimated that his soldiers numbered 39,500, almost twice the Egyptian force, 2,500 chariots and two groups of infantry, 18,000 and 19,000. Whether these numbers can actually be trusted, I don't know. They come from the Egyptian records. What's critical to note here is that you now have, for the first time in recorded world history, what is in essence a world war. You have armies, imperial armies, which are gathering sources from multiple subsidiary nation states, which are coming together at one spot, which is part of a campaign that is over a century long. This is not just a battle. Ramses II leaves Egypt. By the way, this is an example of an Egyptian charioteer. Notice you only get two people per chariot. The Hittites have three. Here is the Hittite opposing force. So the yellow line, if you can make it out, that is his quick campaign in year four. We now have years five, five, eight, eight, and ten to talk about. Some of this now, five is what we'll talk about now. The others will come later. So Ramses II left Egypt in the summer of year five with four divisions marching through Canaan and South Syria. There was a separate Asiatic support force, the Narin, which seems to be a Moabite word because of the plural in in, who were sent along the Phoenician coast. That's the dot, dot, dot up here. They would cut inland in Amuro to join with Ramses II at Kadesh. This proved to be a critically wise strategic decision. The Hittites never knew these forces existed. By late May of 1274, exactly one month from his departure, Ramses II was camped on Kimuat Hamil Ridge, a few miles south of Kadesh. On the following morning, the royal unit and the first division of Ammon hastened on the road toward Kadesh, that two miles. The three other divisions were spaced some distance behind. This is a tactical trade-off between access to limited roads and the need for time to refill or replenish the available water sources. You're traveling with vast amounts of people, 20,000 people. The roads are small, the water sources are limited. You cannot push everybody together, you have to string them out. 
Now that's tactically based on, on for the benefit of movement and the need for replenishing, but it proves also a problem in that there's a genuine risk of encountering an enemy ambush while still separated and so being destroyed, which we will see. The speed of the Egyptian force would give an advantage in surprise and preparation for battle, but create potential issues with supply and sudden attack. The professional Nairin soldiers were an asset to Egypt and a pool of talent not available to the Hittites. They were a shock force. As Ramses II moved through Labwe forest, and I'll show you that in just a moment, to reach to ford the Orontes River near the town of Shabtuna, two Bedouin come out of the woods and offer allegiance of their tribal chiefs to the Egyptians defecting from the Hittites. These two Bedouin decoys were interrogated about the location of these defecting chiefs, and they informed the king, and we have this right there on that wall, they are where the ruler of Hatti is, for the Hittite enemy is in the land of Aleppo, north of Tunip. He is too afraid of Pharaoh to come south since he heard that Pharaoh was coming north. So according to this report, Muatali was supposedly hiding in northern Syria 120 miles away and afraid to fight. As a result, Ramses II and the royal unit crossed the ford toward Kadesh. The division of Ammon is trailing behind, and they make camp on the northwest of Kadesh. At that point, the Egyptian scouts capture two Hittite scouts. Here is Ramses, this is his camp, and we'll be seeing these scouts right here being investigated. This is the same scene, but from inside Abu Simbel. Ramses at camp on the evening before the battle. And yes, we are remarkably lucky that the Egyptian records are so copious in their information. So these scouts were interrogated, which means clubbed, and brought before Pharaoh, and they said, then said his majesty, what are you? They replied, we belong to the ruler of Hatti. He sent us to see where your majesty was. His majesty said to them, where is he, the ruler of Hatti? See, I heard that he was in the land of Aleppo, north of Tunup. They replied, behold, the ruler of Hatti is arrived, together with many foreign lands that he brought as allies. They are positioned, armed, and ready to fight just behind Kadesh. Not 120 miles away, just there. So there's an emergency war council. <laughs> Ramses II scolded his officers for faulty intelligence. The division of Ra was still crossing the plain before Kadesh. Here's, here is the, the wood of Labwe. Here is Shabtuna, where the ford is. So the king has gone up here and camped here. The division of Ammon is with him, and the division of Ra is just coming across. <clears throat> and behind, the division of Ptah hasn't even crossed the river yet, and the division of Seth is way down there, back in the forest. When suddenly there is a chariot charge led by the Hittite princes that fords the Orontes south of Kadesh and cuts the division of Ra in half and scatters them. The remnants flee north to the royal camp, the Ammon division preparing the camp for Ramses' panics. The infantry and chariotry abandoned the king. 
The Hittites surround the royal camp. Ramses is left virtually alone with his picked individuals, and and in his chariot he rallies his troops. He ignores the call to flee by his own shield-bearer, Mena. He prays to Ammon and charges the Hittites six times, disrupting them as they stopped to pillage the camp. Now, here is the standard of Ra, the group that was cut to ribbons. And here is one of, I'll show you several of these, because this is the remarkable thing about this battle. We can actually show you precisely what happened. So here is the ford here. This is where the Egyptians were crossing. The Hittites suddenly send their chariot force across, cutting this one to pieces. Ammon goes up here, and they all surround and are near the Hittite, I mean, the Egyptian camp. Here you see the same, a different version of the same set of facts. The Hittite army is sitting over here. That's important to note because they never really come into play. The chariotry had come across here, attacked the brigade of Ra. Finally, Ptah would come up later in the day. Here is the royal camp where Ramses is fighting essentially alone with a small group of special individuals. Here is Ramses fighting alone. Here is a 19th century drawing of the same thing with his favorite royal lion, (laughs) whose diet is apparently Hittite. Here is the Egyptian royal camp as seen at Luxor Temple. There is the camp, and what you see all around here are the Hittites breaking ranks and stopping to plunder the camp rather than killing Ramses and solving the whole problem in a matter of moments. So Ramses is able to stave them off to essentially fight those who are, to drive off those who, while everybody else tries to pillage the fort, and then the shock troops arrive over the horizon, turning the tide, and then the division of Ta moves up, and suddenly there are two Egyptian divisions and a cut-to-pieces Hittite chariotry, which then flees as fast as possible to get back across the river and get out of there leaving Ramses victorious for the battle and controlling all the territory in front of the city. So here is the Abu Simbel version of the sacking of the royal camp. And here is the fleeing of the Hittites back across. Here's the city. And all of these mass infantry, this is where the Hittite ruler was with his infantry that never engaged in the battle. They just stood there. What is interesting to note is that, in essence, both rulers were without control of the forces in the field. With such vast numbers of men, it's almost, and and no walkie-talkies or cell phones, there's only so much you can do to create cohesion among massive forces. And Muatali was unable to control his troops, which fell to plundering, and the Egyptian troops were cut to ribbons, and Ramses was furious at the division of Ammon, which deserted him, as did the division of Ra. The Hittite attack then disintegrated. It lost its opportunity when the Narin forces arrived from Amuru. The Hittites retreat. There's a counterattack by Ramses II, who rallied the forces with new arrivals. He drove them back into the Orontes River, swimming or drowning. And one of those dead right in here has a title above him, and it says that he is the brother of the Hittite ruler. The Hittites lost many important individuals in their infrastructure. And here... 
uh, there's a close-up of that, the brother of Andy. We can see them fleeing headlong across the river, being pulled up, and the, one of the Egyptian favorite little humorous events. This is the prince of Aleppo, who was being shaken by the Hittites on the other side of the river to get the water out of him because he was virtually drowned. Egyptians knew how to swim. So the Exodus account is a very problematic because all the Egyptian soldiers would have swum. But apparently Syrians can't. The main Hittite force never left its position behind Kadesh. The division of Taros took prisoners tallying severed hands from each Hittite corpse. It was a serious rout. Because the main Hittite force never left behind Kadesh, Mutali doesn't count, doesn't take part of the account, the Egyptian texts describe him as he just stood, turning back, cringing and fearful. The Egyptians will eventually have a better view of the Hittites, but it will be a while in coming. The remnants of the divisions of Ra and Ammon return to praise the royal valor a little late. Ramses II upbraids them as cowards who left him alone to fight. The bulk of the poetic text is actually about his anger at his own divisions and their failure to protect him. He casts himself as an unequaled, unequaled servant to the army. He says, talking about the, the soldiers and how he had granted them exemptions for all sorts of taxes, as for anyone who requested petitions, I'll do it. Here I am, I said to him daily. What Ramses II, who's also often considered to be very boastful, is actually doing is he's directly quoting from a Yushebti spell. For those of you who don't know what a Yushebti is, it's an answering servant figure who does something for you in the underworld. So what Ramses is doing as the massive god on earth is putting himself in the position of a servant to his own troops, which is a pretty remarkable statement. But he was left abandoned. He says, not an officer, captain, or soldier came to me to give a hand as I fought my great chariot steeds. It was they whom I found to help me, not you people. The division of Seth finally arrived by sunsets. The Egyptians were left with two intact divisions and their support troops, two Maul divisions. The two Hittites have infantry groups intact, but chariotry mauled. A major loss of Muwatali's Hittite leaders included two of Muwatali's own brothers, two of his shield bearers, his own personal secretary, the chief of his bodyguard, four leading charioteers, six army chiefs, plus general casualties. So here is yet another a German version of exactly what I've described to you. Here is the crossing of Ammon and then Re, where the Hittites come through, shatter it. But then the Hittites scatter just in time for the two other divisions to come up and save the day. Here are two shield bearers for the Hittite king. Here and here, slain. Here are two charioteers for the Hittite king, slain. And this is the Hittite king's personal secretary, his letter writer. So then, what are the reasons for the Hittites' failure to seize what should have been an easy victory? First, Ramses II's personal valor, the undisciplined Hittite pillaging, the arrival of the Nairin support troops and the Ptah in division, the inactivity of this Hittite superior infantry. They had twice as many soldiers. The last-minute capture of spies by the Egyptians, the Hittite reconnaissance failure to discover half the Egyptian army was yet to show up, 
from the south and the Nairine Fest group coming in from the west. It was an opportunity squandered, and it became a personal victory for, the Ram- for Ramses. Ramses II took the field the next dawn. He drove back the enemy. Muwatali sued for peace by a letter in the hand of his envoy, greeting Ramses II as Baal in person, stating, peace is better than war, grant us breath. This, of course, is the Egyptian version. Ramses II summoned his council of authors to discuss the words that the vile ruler of Hatti had sent to me. You will note the overtones. The officers speak out in unison. Excellent indeed is peace, O sovereign our Lord. There is no dishonor in peace when you make it. Who shall resist you on the day of your wrath? So the battle ends. Ramses II returns to Egypt. Many prisoners and spoils were presented to the Egyptian temples, and many of these Hittite prisoners were then used to construct Abu Simbel, recording their own defeat from the Egyptian perspective. As it is suggested here in tiny print that you probably cannot read... For the Egyptians, this was a tactical victory. For the Hittites, a strategic victory, and perhaps ultimately a draw. For Ramses, his major needs were met. He is now a military hero. He has restored the valor of the royal house. Who cares about Kadesh? He's got the territory south of that that he wants. So all, from his point of view, is fine, which is why he simply left. Teo, all yours. After the wealth of uh, Egyptian sources about the battle, I'll now present you with all the Hittite sources that we have for uh, the engagement around Kadesh. At the moment of the battle, Muwatali is king, and his, his chief general is his later successor, the later king Hattusili. All told, we have four references in all of Hittite literature, in the tens of thousands of tablets that we have, uh, to this momentous event, uh, to this uh, world war, but the Hittites just didn't know that it was a world war. (laughs) The first one, um, it's all about Amuru for the Hittites. The first text is the only contemporary reference. It's a vow, as we call it, of the later King Hattusili, now still commander, the most important general for his brother. And it's probably uttered on the eve of the battle, and uh, Hattusili is asking for success in battle and promising the deity to give him or her something wonderful in case uh, the god answers uh, his prayer. And so the text says, as far as that campaign that his majesty is going on is concerned, if you, O gods, march ahead of me and I will conquer Amuru, that is, either I will conquer it by armed force or it will make peace with me, and then the text, of course, breaks off. The next paragraph, which is even more fragmentary, does mention Egypt, so it seems pretty certain that the campaign that His Majesty is going on um, and where he hopes to conquer Amuru is indeed the battle at Kadesh. And this already makes clear that for the Hittites it was all about Amur. As I told you in the beginning, for the Hittites, control over northern Syria was of 
strategic importance in order to uh, control, among other things, uh, access into uh, Anatolia. Um, the only, so this is the only contemporary reference. The only explicit reference to the battle has to wait uh, for this tablet, which was drawn up some 50 years after the fact, around 1225. And it says as follows, My Muwatali um, and the king of Egypt fought a battle over the people of Amuru, and Muwatali defeated him. Amuru he destroyed by force, subjected it, and he installed Mr. Shapili as king in Amuru. Period. There are two more references in Hittite literature, but they are very oblique, very marginal. Um, they, their Kadesh is mentioned, uh, or the Amuru campaign is mentioned, uh, only to place something else which is far more important in that text in time. Something happened either before or after the Amuru campaign. Uh, one of them is uh, a later text by Hattushili III who tells us that when he returns from Egypt, on his return from the battle back home to the capital, which is Hattusha is at that moment the capital again, then he picks up his future wife in southern Anatolia. So that's it. And the three words in English, which match three words in Hittite, Muwatali defeated him, very clearly state the Hittite point of view. Their objective going into the campaign was to get control over Amuru back. And that's what they got. And Amuru would stay in the Hittite fold until the fall of the uh, Hittite kingdom or empire, if you will, uh, around 1200. What the battle did, it's not clear. The battle wore out. I have to thank uh, Stephen Weingartner, who told me a lot about ancient warfare and especially about the Battle of Kadesh. Uh, the battle, the troops just wore out and that was it. And none of the two parties had any inclination to do it all over again the next day or in the next years. For the Hittites, Amuro is important and that is what they got. When Ramses II departed, Muwatali retained Kadesh, he took Amuru, and in addition, the Egyptian province of Upi. Despite the warning to the Hittites, Bintashina of Amuru was not restored to his throne, but promptly packed off in exile under the control of Muwatali's brother, Hattusili, about, which, about whom we will hear more later. The result, however, of this failure to knock out what should have been an easy enemy, I mean, honestly, led to an understanding of Hittite vulnerability in northern Syria, and so emboldened the Assyrian Adad-Nirari I to claim great king status. He seized the Hittite province of Kanigalbat, which was formerly a province of Mitanni that had been an ally of Egypt before Mitanni ceased to exist. He sent a letter to Muatali demanding an alliance or threatening to invade Hittite Syria. 
The demand was rebuffed by Muatali, but the security of Hittite Syria was forever compromised. In year seven, that is to say two years later, Ramses II pacified a revolt in Palestine. He marched north to Damascus, and he recaptured the province of Upi from the Hittites. In years eight to nine, that is to say three years in a row of campaigning back in Syria, he, Ramses moved up the coast. He outflanked Kadesh and Amuru. He struck inland. He seized the mid-Orontes. He bisects Amuru. He captures Tunup and Dapur and cuts, cuts Kadesh off from the Hittites in the north. He encircled it. He took all the territory north and everything south. So Kadesh, so what? From the Egyptian point of view. There was no Hittite reaction because Muwatali was now dead. Urkhiteshup, the son by a concubine, was on the throne now as Mershili III. And he was rightfully fearful of his throne at the hands of his uncle, Hattushili. In the contest between these two rulers, Hattushili wins. He exiles Mershili and returns Bintashina once again to Amuru. In year 18 of Ramses, however, Mershili flees to the Egyptian court. Ramsey, so he is now the pretender to the Hittite throne, or the legitimate heir to the Hittite throne, is now living in Egypt at the Egyptian court. Ramses II conducts a fifth campaign in Canaan, and he refuses to extradite Morshili back to the Hittites. Assyria now seizes Hanigalbat and is now on Hittites in the Hittite Empire's border at the Euphrates. As a result, the Hittites face two fronts, and the former king, who was dangled by Egypt, is now resident with Ramses II. These events are the probable impetus for treaty negotiations. In year 21, there is a formal treaty. Copies exist in both Egyptian, I show you here, and Hittite. And it is notable that this includes an extradition clause. So the silver tablet is presented to Ramses II at court. Egypt keeps all the Phoenician coast, even up to Ugarit, which had not been controlled by Egypt since Amenhotep III a century before. What Egypt wants is the coast. Inland, eh. This, no, there's a non-aggression pact, statement of brotherhood, mutual defense, extradition of fugitives, and a promise of no harm to these fugitives should they, <coughs> more surely, or Urkitesha be sent home. He never is, that we know. Uh, the question, we have benediction and curses by both the gods of Egypt and Hatti, a detailed description in the Egyptian version of the Hittite seal, which was fascinating to the Egyptians. Uh, the question is, who authored this? Almost certainly there was mutual authorship. There's no non-Egyptian features in the grammar of the Egyptian version, but we can't tell from the cuneiform version because the Egyptians were originally trained in cuneiform by none other than the Hittites. So such features cannot determine the authorship in the tablet copies. Now, the remarkable thing about this is it leads to a long peace. So here, by the way, is the peace treaty, one of several versions of it. This is at Karnak Temple. Here is a close-up showing you the ruler of the great ruler of the Hittites. Do you notice something different about this particular figure? 
forgive me just a moment, I'm going to go back. Here is the Hittite ruler on the battle scenes. It's actually the word for fallen one, defeated, subjected, dead. In the peace treaty, he gets to stand up. So he's now an ally officially and visually. There are 26 letters exchanged between the Egyptian king and Hattusili and 13 to Hattusili's wife, Puduchepa. Here is the Hittite version, or a copy of the Hittite version of the peace treaty. And this is a personal letter from Queen Nefertari in Egypt to Queen Puduchepa at Boazkoi in Hattusa, written in cuneiform, again with Hittite strokes. Um, one of the 13 to the queen. Orchiteship remains in Egypt, but Egyptian doctors are sent to the Hittites. In year 33, Hattusili proposed a marriage of his daughter to Ramses II. By the way, this is, that tablet is in Ankara. This is the descriptive tablet shot through a glass case. But here you can perhaps see what is going on. Here is the marriage document. He, the queen, the princess, arrives in year 34. She is she's given a new name in Egyptian, Ma'at Hor Nefrure, which means she who sees the Horus beauty of Ray, which is me, Ramses II. <laughs> there are six copies of this marriage stela. Abu Simbel, Elephantini, Karnak, two in Nubia, and a stela in the Mut Temple near Karnak. In the year 36, there's the visit of the crown prince, the future Tudhali IV, to Egypt. In year 40, there is a possible visit of Hattusili III. We don't know if it actually happened or not. And in year 44, Ramses marries yet another Hittite princess, of which we have two versions in Egyptian texts. When Ramses died and his son Merneptah took over, we have references to the Egyptian court sending grain to the Hittites in a time of famine. This alliance between Egypt and the Hittites lasted until the collapse of the Hittite society. Here's a close-up of the treaty. By the way, here is the Hittite king. Although this has been slightly damaged, you'll notice he's still standing in the, in the wedding. Here is a statue from Sistanus. These, these statues were moved from Paramesis. This is Ramses the Great. This is one of his many wives. She happens to be Maat Hor Nefrure. She is the princess who is the first marriage. And here is our Hittite ruler standing up. Actually wearing a pretty good approximation of a Hittite crown, as we can see also on one of the, the drawings, an early copy of the, Hitt, the marriage. And here she is, again, now dressed in Egyptian fashion for her new culture. Ramses II would live a long life. He would be remembered as the most famous and impressive of all the Egyptian pharaohs. And now I will show you what the Egyptians did with the memory of the Hittites. Here is the last reference to Hittites in Egyptian records. This is from the Roman period. It is the outer wall of the temple of Kamambo. This is a prisoner figure with his arms bound behind his back, and here is the territory that says Chata, the Hittites. 
Again, this is approximately 1,000 years after the Battle of Kadesh. And despite the fact that they had been friends and, and Hittites had essentially vanished from the world record, they're still known in Egypt as a geographical place to be said to be under Egyptian control. So in some from the Egyptian version, this is the world's first clash of armies of empires, not just a raid. It results in compromise, peace, trade, and security. There was peace between warring international powers that is possible, and this is worth stressing, even in northern Syria. (laughs) Thank you. Well, at least the Hittites made a lasting impression that is pretty clear. There are two final points that I would like to address very briefly. Muwatali dies... Uh, right after, probably right after the battle at Kadesh. He is succeeded by his son Urgiteshu, who also goes by the name Morshili, Morshili III, named after his uncle of whom we saw all these texts. And as Professor Rittner said, uh, Hatushili may well have been the instigator of the peace. Um, it is very interesting to see um, how the uh, process went that led up to the uh, to the peace treaty. Um, if you think of nowadays treaties, uh, negotiating teams from two parties or multiple parties get together. They work on it for months or years, even until they can agree on a text. And it did, and it went in the same way uh, in before 1259. The peace dates to 1259. This is the only point where I have had to rely on on Egyptian sources because it's the Egyptian sources that tell us that Ramesses sent some negotiators to Khatusha, which was again, as I already mentioned, the Hittite capital. They worked there with people on the, Hitt- uh, on the Hittite site, Hittite officials, and they indeed agreed on a text which was then uh, laid down on a silver tablet uh, that was usual among the Hittites to make of very important texts metal copies. We have references in the Hittite texts to gold, silver, bronze, and uh, iron tablets. Only one Copy one such metal tablet has been preserved so far, which is a detail, which is a bronze tablet of which you see a detail here. So this is not the Egyptian treaty, but it gives you a good impression of what they might have looked like. And the this silver tablet, which was then brought by the two teams, the Egyptians and the Hittites, to Egypt, was what we call a typical parity treaty, which means that it that every paragraph that was that contained a stipulation for the Hittites, for Hattushili, had a matching paragraph mentioning Ramesses, with a few interesting exceptions that I won't go into uh, tonight. Um, and it was phrased, a silver tablet that was agreed on by both teams, it was phrased in the name, formulated in the name of Hattushili. So it starts out with, this is the treaty that Hattushili, hero, son of Morshili, great king of Hatti, etc., etc., more titles follow, concluded with Ramses, great king of Egypt, hero, etc., etc. That is the tablet 
brought to Egypt. It is then apparently approved by uh, Ramesses, and another silver tablet is then made with Ramesses mentioned in the first place. So that has, this is the treaty that Ramesses, etc., etc. Um, that tablet is then brought to Hattusha, so that now both partners have a silver treaty tablet. Hattushili has the one with Ramesses in the first place. Ramesses has the one with Hattushili in the first place. So an exchange of copies signed, so to speak, by the other party. The silver tablets, of course, have been lost. Um, in all likelihood, melted down in antiquity. Um, but the, in Hattusha, we have found two clay copies. One you can see in Berlin in the museum and the other in Istanbul. And the Egyptian silver tablet uh, in the name of Hattusili is can now be found back on the walls at Karnak, as Professor Rittner uh, showed. And as uh, Professor Stein mentioned, uh, you can see a replica in New York at the United Nations Security Council. The peace held and two marriages uh, were uh, concluded in 1245 and 1234. The latter one, the 1234, probably early in the reign of Tutgalia, the successor of Hattusili, in order to secure or to, yeah, to uh, indicate to the Egyptians the intentions of the Hittites to maintain, to continue the relations as they were. And now the final point uh, that I want to make tonight. Um, Professor Rittner mentioned the 13 texts and all the reliefs and, and all those sources on the Egyptian side which allowed him to sketch in wonderful detail how the battle went. Why do we have so little on the Hittite side? I told you we have in total four references there. The first um, thing you could say is, well, they were there, but they have been lost. And actually that's not a bad idea in the sense that if we look at the reign of Murshili, who was the reigning king during the battle, we have compared to his predecessor, King Morshili, and his successor, second successor, Hattusili III, we have relatively few sources out of, from his time. And that is due, very probably, to the fact that he moved the capital, and we haven't found that capital yet. So somewhere in southern Anatolia, something like a Ramesseum might still be awaiting us, and tablets... Um, glorifying Muwatali single-handedly slaying thousands of Egyptians. <laughs> Yet somehow I don't expect those records and reliefs to be there. It is only in the old kingdom around, let's say, 1600 in the Hittite lands that kings are portrayed in a way similar to uh, Ramesses, as Ramesses does with himself. Uh, we see there an old Hittite king uh, being compared to a lion trampling down on cities and people. Um, and it's very likely from that 
time, then, that we have the single relief in uh, Hittite art depicting something of a war scene. Um, if it's a very badly preserved and abraded uh, relief, there are sort of two registers. On the upper register, we see a king probably on a chariot drawn by a horse, and he is having a spear here and stabbing somebody lying under the chariot. And below that, we see a person standing, either a king or it could also be a god, uh, likewise stabbing with a spear at a person uh, uh, lying down. But then, around the middle of the 16th century, uh, 1550, 1500, something seems to happen in Hittite society. A code of law is being drawn up in which uh, in many cases capital punishment is turned into a fine. Many fines are reduced by half. There is a royal decree saying that if somebody is guilty of a crime then his family should not be uh, implicated or not be punished, just that person. Um, before 1550, we see a chain of killings, a vicious circle of killings in the royal house that then the king who issues this decree wants to break and he says, no more killing. Let's now on banish people rather than killing them, trying to stop this vicious cycle. And if we look at later historiographical texts in which kings, Hittite kings, tell about battles... There is an interest about the things leading to the battle. There is some telling about what happened after the battle. But the battle itself is, seems to be of complete disinterest. What we find is a formula that says, the sun goddess of Arena, my lady, the mighty storm god, my lord, the god Medzula, and all the gods marched ahead of me, and I defeated person, enemy, X. And that is it as far as interest in a battle is concerned. Now, I have no illusion that Hittite kings were any less ruthless than their peers in uh, Mesopotamia uh, and Egypt, or modern societies for that matter. The routine mentions of the sacking and burning of cities, albeit as I said, never in any detail, and the deportations of large numbers, tens of thousands of people, must hide enormous sufferings uh, on the inhabitants of those countries. But the point is that Hittite kings don't dwell on it. They don't seem to relish those tales, and they apparently never exploited it for propagandistic reasons. Um, That's... Now, you could say, yeah, but those are Hittite tablets. They were only for the administration. They were not for the wider dissemination. Uh, Well, even if we look at the few large publicly displayed um, uh, monuments that we have in the Hittite capital and elsewhere that recount something of battles, they are difficult to read, admittedly, but they seem to use that same formula that we see here. And there is no display of uh, royal uh, uh, valiance or, 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 or power. 
the Hittite king's role vis-à-vis his people was one of, he was the embodiment of nature. He was the uh, guarantor of fertility and productivity of the land, of flora and fauna. We have an elaborate description of the funeral rites for a Hittite king. And in the second half of that, there are every day is devoted to a certain theme, the day of agriculture, the day of viticulture, the day of hunting, things important to uh, the Hittite population. But there is no day devoted to the Hittite king as the commander, the military commander-in-chief. So, in the end, I think it is the ideology of Hittite kingship that was so very different from the Egyptian one that I think is responsible in the end for the huge discrepancy between the enormous wealth, fortunately, of the Egyptian sources and the scarceness of Hittite sources. Thank you.